That's good shit. Disturbed ASMR. <laughs> That's. Wake me up inside. Fuck. If your name was Evan and you had to produce like your own perfume, is that mm. an old? Is that a hack joke? Um, I think that's funny. I don't know. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yep. Yep. Essence of Evan. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. Welcome aboard Beef Station. Join us once again as we rocket through the stars at the speed of sound. I'm Oscar. Hi. I'm Andrew. Let's jump into it. Boy, Fuck how yeah. you doing? Yeah, um, I'm I'm tired again. <laughs> this, is a, this is an unusual time for us. It's a morning sesh, yeah. which means <laughs> I think we got to record it midday all the time. It's 9 a.m. somewhere, baby, here. It's 9 a.m. here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's enough time for, like, in the afternoon, I'm fucked after, like, a day at work or whatever. In the morning, yeah, yep. I've just woken up. You're fucked after a hard night of sleeping. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, literally. No, that thing happened where my alarm went off and I was like deep, deep in the middle of a dream. And so <laughs> like I woke up and I was like, <laughs> where am I? <laughs> so yeah, still reeling from that. Um, mm. Yeah, how about you? How are you going? I'm doing well. How's yeah. this? I think that people always say that hearing other people's dreams is boring, but I disagree. Yeah, I think it's I interesting. Think, okay, right. So Who I says think- that? People, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a standard thing. Like, no one wants to hear about your fucking dream. I All suppose right. the thing is, everyone thinks their own dream is interesting. But for everyone else, it's like, no, it's it's a made up thing that didn't happen. I don't care. You've got to make it interesting, sure. But that's so, like all stories are boring unless you have a good storyteller. I don't remember a lot of my dreams, but my favorite dream I ever had <laughs> was one I do remember, which is where I like found myself in like a deserted version of my primary school, and mm. I was in like a paintball match. And it was like yeah, playing sick. paintball in in like the as the with the primary school as the field. That's fucking. Had a great, great old. It was fucking great. Do you get this? Okay, <laughs> so like I find I don't really remember my dreams. Like if I tried to actively remember them, I couldn't conjure them up. But then sometimes I know that I have created an environment in my dream. So like for instance, like uh, a lucid dreaming. A McDonald's thing? that I've never been to or whatever. So like playing in the kids' playground area at, at a McDonald's. I know that this doesn't exist because it was a place that I invented in my in my head. But every now and then, I will remember very vividly that area. Yeah. And that happens to me a lot. Like, a bunch of different environments that I've created, specifically in dreams. I remember the time that that happened. Like, I remember in, in my actual life, the time that I remembered waking up and like and being like oh that place wasn't real i was dreaming <laughs> but i remember the environments really vividly yeah only when i'm like reminded of them so it's w- what's crazy to me is like that means that those environments are like buried deep in my fucking <laughs> memory. somewhere in there yeah but you're not like your memory works really differently when you're dreaming it's like biologically um it's you have all sorts of like inhibitors um, your like your neurochemistry is going fucking crazy, and it means that your memory is working completely differently to normal. So that's why you wake up and you don't remember most yeah. of your dreams. It's because like your brain isn't active in the same way that it would be when you're awake. Welcome to Dream Station. It's fucking crazy to me that like despite that, it's somehow storing these in like some way that is not particularly easy to access or whatever. Yeah, I'm interested to hear if like other people get that too. Because last time I was like, oh, do you ever stare at yourself in the mirror and freak yourself out? And you were like, <laughs> you are a crazy <laughs> man. <laughs> Highlight of the podcast like, eight ever. people were like, yes, that happened. Yes, I've definitely done that. Yes. <laughs> sure. No, seriously. The, like, o- the other eight people you see in the mirror were yeah. all like, yes, <laughs> yeah, Andrew. Yeah. The other eight people in my head. <laughs> um, 
But yeah. that, that you wouldn't has that happened to you? Remembering stuff. Specifically like locations for me, yeah. It conjures up like the whole dream, which is weird. Nah. Sometimes you get that thing where like you'll just experience a situation that you think you've dreamed it before. Right. Like someone will say a specific sentence, or I'll just be sitting in my car and a song will come up on the radio and I'll get a text and someone in the back seat will say something and all of a sudden I'm like <gasps> That's like deja vu, a, right? It, yeah, I mean yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it is yeah, exactly. So, but you'll get this like real hardcore deja vu and I sit there being like, I have dreamt this. Yeah. I have dreamt yeah. this. And I don't understand what that the is. The more that that's happened to me in my life, the more that I've become convinced that it is actually just a malfunctioning of memory circuits and that I'm wrong. But it's such a compelling feeling that yeah. you're remembering it. Because, like, yeah, do you know, have you heard about what, like, what the hypothesis for well, it's what like, deja vu is? It's, it's like, like a split second before the memory's, fo- like, you see yeah, it. It's you're like forming, forming memories memory. at the same yeah. time as, yeah, as you're But then you could be like, basically. no, if this hadn't happened a second ago and you'd asked me to recall every dream I've ever had, I eventually would have got to this and I would have written this down and then it would have happened. Yeah. Like, I fucking, I'm, I'm fucking psychic. Yeah, yeah. Like, at some point, <laughs> that I've, I've, I've experienced. It's such a before, strong yeah. emotion. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, insane. Maybe I'm a part of the simulation that you're in that's trying to convince you to accept the simulation as more real than it actually is. Would certainly and be a more rational explanation <laughs> as to why I have a fucking podcast. Yeah, that's true, actually. Because <laughs> um, there's no good reason. Oh, absolutely, absolutely not. Anyway, little little detour, but yeah. Right. Let's get into it. So this week we're doing Jonah Hill's directorial debut, mid-90s. Mid-90s. Mm. About uh, skater kids in LA in 1973. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, the mid-19s. <laughs> mid- Mid-19s. That's good shit. Mid-19s. That's good. That is good. <laughs> I, I, I bloody say. <laughs> <laughs> I say, I say. Um, no, uh, it's about LA skater kids in like 1990-something. Mm. There's a lot of like baggy-ass clothing and like LA... Teenage Ninja Turtles. West Coast yeah. hip-hop. Yeah, Ninja Turtles, all sorts of shit like that. Yeah, so that. I guess we can get into this later, but I'm interested in like going through a little bit of the gradient that we've had recently of coming-of-age stories across that period of time. Yeah, and we, were, it, yeah. And we talked with Josh briefly when he was on a couple of weeks ago mm. about uh, 80s nostalgia and 90s nostalgia. and um, Yeah, it's funny that it's it's like a recurring recurring thing you get of all this no- <laughs> like nostalgia for previous decades mm. as you go on. Like, I want to mm. see what like the naughtiest nostalgia is going to look like. Yeah, well, I think I've got some examples of that, but let's let's come back to yeah, it. Cool. So we're going to do some news first. We'll kick into the news, we might do a bit of beefness or pleasure, and then we'll uh, round out the pod by doing a bit of mid-90s chat. Sure. Uh, you ready? Yep. Beef Bulletin. Story kick off Beef Bulletin this week about the new Joker film. Yep. They've released a new image showing that Robert De Niro is going to be in the film. Oh, okay. There we go. He apparently really loved the script and is one of the reasons why he's involved. Um, he's reasonably picky too, isn't he? Like, I think he's... Oh, I don't know. I mean, the fact that he did Meet the Fuckers and Meet the Parents and Bad okay. Grandpa recently yeah. would indicate that the answer is no. I did Bad Grandpa. Okay. <laughs> Maybe wrong. Uh, I thought he, w- he kind of ha- had established a bit of a name for himself of being like, in the, in the sort of like Francis Ford Coppola kind of level of cinephile but maybe not maybe he just needed money <laughs> yeah i know <laughs> exactly i suppose i don't really know about it i think it's the sort of thing where it's like man he's been in taxi driver and raging bull and yeah, all that so shit like, give the man a pay yeah, exactly. he can do whatever the fuck yeah, he wants but no yeah. i'm really looking forward to this movie it looks awesome it's got robert de niro starring as a talk show host named murray franklin 
Joaquin Phoenix plays the Joker, whose character name in the movie is Arthur Fleck. Interestingly, we were talking a couple of weeks ago, or a little while ago now, when the movie was originally announced, we were sort of speculating on it, about what it might be based on and whether it's based on the killing joke or not. Uh, another story here from Empire says that it's actually not going to follow any story directly from any specific comic book. It's like a new original story. Mm. We've had a couple adaptations of killing joke type stuff, and so I suppose it's cool to sort of have a new origin story. I don't know. I suppose it's hard to say anything about it because it's always nice to have original scripts. But yeah. like, I'm really looking forward to this movie. It looks like yeah. a weird fucking like art house ass movie. Comes out in October. I refuse to get my hopes up. But, <laughs> so I have no expectations. I'm just not going to think about it, but I'll probably see it. It just yeah. looks so good, man. Like I'm just, I they're, love Walking Phoenix in everything. They're doing all the right things and that trailer looked really good. So, it looks so yeah. good. But also like, I don't know. You could have showed me some stuff about... Well, actually, no, because the Suicide Squad trailer was absolute shit. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I feel like... I, I, I don't know. I feel like the, the marketing for films, you can do so much shit that um, I'm just not yeah, not convinced by anything anymore. I assume it's all going to be bullshit. Ari Aster's new horror film, Midsommar, is, of course, being released very soon. <laughs> I, I think... So Midsommar! We, we say that every time. <laughs> I think it's definitely just meant to be midsummer. Mid- midsummer. I'm gonna go with midsummer because <laughs> yeah. I like the way you said it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's meant to be Swedish, right? Uh, yeah, or Mid- somewhere in Scandinavia. So I don't yeah, know just where exactly. say like PewDiePie. Yeah, without the without the N word. <laughs> I was gonna say. Um, uh, yeah, so it's coming <laughs> out very okay. soon. Your faithful boys in beef mm. are seeing it at the beginning of August. We're gonna cover it on an episode for sure. Uh, it's come out earlier. Elsewhere in the world. I think it's already out in the US or somewhere. Yeah, Yeah. because I've already heard reviews of it. And I haven't heard people talking about how shit or how good it is, which I think is a good sign. It's just been people making in-jokes about it. Yeah. Which I think (laughs) is something that people do when they prefer something. I I know it's not going to be so shit that they're only making in-jokes about it because it's not worth talking about anything else. But, yeah, I... I, I'm I'm quietly hoping. Well, I haven't heard... I said I've heard reviews. I've heard that people have seen it just because I know it's out. Right. I haven't heard anything reasonably bad about it. So I, ho- I hope it's great. Mm. In any case, uh, Ari Aster, the director of Midsommar and previously Hereditary, which we covered very, right at the very beginning of the show, mm. he did an AMA on Reddit the other day. Yep. Um, talking about all sorts of things. And he said that he had at least well, another half an hour. <laughs> yeah, well, he said he had, he had at least another half an hour's worth of material that he's going to add back in for, like, a director's cut. Oh, shit. The film is already, like, 150 minutes, though. So, like... Fuck. I don't know. I it's think like, like Apocalypse Now. Yeah, exactly. And, like, uh, I don't know. I feel like a lot of the time the director's cuts get, like, a widely considered to be, like, the definitive version mm. because it's what the creative wanted. Um, the only one that I can think of off the top of my head where the director's cut was worse is that apparently the Donnie Darko director's cut is fucking abysmal and that, like, the studio and the editors saved that movie. Well, the director's <laughs> cut, yeah. I mean, it's it's getting it a little into the, like, how the sausage is made on that. But I get yeah. the feeling that usually, often, that my understanding is that the director and the editor usually work in a... In a, in a way that it's sort of the director and the editor work in an adversarial relationship to the producer because the producer's job is to try and get the film to be profitable yeah. and get the film made and then get it to be profitable. Yeah. Whereas the editor is trying to service the director's vision in yeah. the best way that they possibly can. So well, service service the film, I suppose. Make the film good. And so I suppose the, the, the example yeah, but the in this case... the director is the, the mind behind yeah, well, that I suppose film, the example right? that I'm using with Donnie Darko is that the director had a specific vision for the film and mm. the editor and everyone was like, no, that'll be dog shit. No. Yeah, so... so <laughs> well, you have like Star Wars as an example yeah. of where the Star, Star Wars was saved in the edit because it was really weird and bloated and was a lot more space opera-y. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Like the mm. director... It usually, 
it's the the director and the editor telling the producer like no fuck off we know what we're doing just just leave it and we're going to come up with something and yeah. then they'll come up with their final cut and then the producer will be like no nah, you have to get rid of 40 minutes of material or whatever yeah um usually it is still the strongest version but i guess if the director went back in without the help of a really good editor and was like no i'm going to have this and i'm going to have this and i'm going to have then yeah it would turn out to be like a fucking mess which maybe is what happened with Donnie Darko yeah other talking points around Midsommar coming up are of course that um, in terms of setting and tone it kind of bears a bit of a resemblance to The Wicker Man yep. an iconic 1973 film that I don't really know a tremendous amount about other than the fact that it's sort of set in a folksy little village and ends with that giant burning figure um, and so this article here on Empire is talking about the idea that it's similar enough that Ari Aster had to deliberately like not use that as inspiration and he right. sort of it, the best the best he's tried to do he says here is he had to basically let go of the wicker man as an influence the moment i decided to make this i tried to avoid it as much as i could i think what the movie tries to do is point to the wicker man and set up expectations that are native to that film and then take a left turn from there and go somewhere surprising okay which is cool and exciting and i also think it means that i might i think i've had a um <clears throat> off-site backup copy of the wicker man on my hard drive for quite a long time now so I think I might have. I think I'm going to go in and watch The Wicker Man in preparation for Midsommar. Right. And um, have a bit of a, you know, a bit of a bit of a prep sesh. Sure. Because it sounds like if he's using that as some sort of jumping off point or some sort of point upon yeah. which to divert your expectations, might be good to, might be good to sort of. It's a bit of risk reward. Lather myself up a bit. Maybe if you haven't seen it, then it would feel derivative, but maybe it w- it will be better. So depends on how good of a job he's done of taking that left turn. I yeah, suppose. I suppose so. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Um, Quentin Tarantino's new film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is of course coming out very soon. There's an article here from NME quoting an interview from GQ where he says that he thinks he's going to quit directing. Oh, he shit. thinks that he's sort of reached the end of the road. And he said that last time, I think a, qu- a couple films ago, he said he only ever wanted to do nine or ten movies and then be out. Right. And never never direct another film. Um, what so does he, he want to do instead? Well, he's followed up Produce? here and said that he sees himself writing films, books, oh, okay. and starting to write theatre. So still still being creative, he just he thinks he's given all that he has to movies. Brad Pitt support, I'm just go- basically going blow by blow through this article. Brad Pitt says that he thinks that Quentin Tarantino is dead serious and isn't bluffing at all. Wow. It'd be kind of cool, though, to go out with a bang. It kind of reminds me of... Um, like the sort of the decade after the Beatles broke up, where a lot of people were saying it's good if they don't get back together, right? Cause they because they just leave it. Yeah. They had this perfect legacy, and I think to some degree, Tarantino has sort of said in the past he sort of wants to preserve his his legacy and not, yeah, yeah, and not be like the sort of guy who just kept making movies until he faded away. Like I think um, I don't remember which one. Who's the guy that did The Godfather? Is that Francis Ford Coppola? I think so. I think it's that. Guy. I think he released a couple movies later on that no one really gave a fuck about. John right. Carpenter, I think, released movies that no one really gave a fuck about. Yeah, so John Carpenter, yeah. Yeah, I think it's cool to have, like, um, be like, yeah, Tarantino just released 10 movies and then just was done, and every movie he's done is great kind yep. of thing. Mm. Rather than, like, oh, no, you have to go in on the early stuff because his latest stuff is shit. I, I think just, yeah, like, I, I, I feel like he's wavered a little bit in, in his recent few films. And um, so, like, uh, Django is great. Hateful Eight... I actually really enjoyed, but I also felt like he just reskinned Reservoir Dogs, which was funny. He 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 creates these like pastiches of other kind of films where like you know like Kill Bill is influenced by so many different things that it's just this crazy mix of um, 
mixes so many things that's going on that it does actually almost create like its unique uh, a unique sense of its own identity. Pulp Fiction did that too. Reservoir Dogs did that too. It's that unique like cinema DJ thing, man, that I didn't get from Hateful Eight. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, yeah, so I guess the cinema DJ thing is like a phrase that's come yeah. to be associated with him. But uh, I, and I felt like a real because I enjoyed the movie, but then I was also. Reservoir Dogs is my favorite one of his. And yeah. so when it felt like he was reusing his own old material, I was like, oh, this I, is... I suppose Reservoir Dogs is the film I'm least familiar with of his, other than maybe like Jackie Brown, it's, which I haven't I seen. I think it's his best, honestly. <laughs> so, yeah. I oh, may, like Maybe Pulp Fiction is his, it's his best, but I enjoyed Reservoir Dogs. I really like Django Unchained, man. Yeah, that movie is so yeah, much that fun. That would be like second or third for me. I think, that, like, I think that's the thing. I think a lot of his movies are so much fun to experience mm. and hateful eight isn't really. Hateful Eight's really chilled out. I suppose in the way that a lot of those, the couple of those westerns we we watched back for our westerns episode, yep. were really slow and chilled out. And it's kind of like a long, drawn out. I don't know if that's true. I reckon you might be surprised at how tense Hateful Eight was if you went back and rewatched it. I think you were just bored because it went for so long. Yeah, that's probably true. I think I also. I think it was tense the whole time. I wish that we had seen the like the Roadhouse version with the with the break in the middle. We've yeah. mentioned it a couple of times. It doesn't yeah, matter, yeah, but yeah. yeah. Interesting to see what Quentin Tarantino gets up to next. Sure. I'm really looking forward to this new movie. If this is his last movie, fuck, I hope it's a good yeah, one. Yeah, and to it go sounds out. back to its back to his own like ba- back to a, a, a very interesting and, and yeah. U- yeah, unique kind of setting. Well, you said recently he's been off off form. I, I, I disagree though, is, is my point. Like I think the Hateful Eight might have been something that wasn't to everyone's taste, but it the the movie he did before that is Django Unchained, and every movie he's done I think has been pretty good. Yeah. Honestly, I haven't seen... There's a couple of his I haven't seen. But he's one of my favourite directors, and I think that, like... Yeah, you're a white man, of course. Yeah, also, it'd be nice to have that um, Blu-ray box set that's just never gonna... Never gonna become outdated, baby. The complete Tarantino yeah, collection. That's true. It's like, there's a couple of years where you could buy, like, the complete Bond collection. My God, that is going <laughs> to be... The Tarantino collection is going to be, like, $400. <laughs> yeah. Like, mark my words, $400. Yeah. Fuck, man. There's more James Bond news this week right. about this movie that's just never fucking happening. Yep. Um, news that Christoph Waltz is going to return as the villain in his in his role as Ernst Blofeld. Okay. Who is, if you're not familiar with the early James Bond stuff. So, Ernst, Christoph Waltz was in the most recent Bond movie, Spectre. That I yep. think everyone forgets existed because it wasn't that good. Yeah. Um, but Christoph Waltz, because you know how the recent Daniel no, Craig Spectre movies... Spectre was good, wasn't it? No. Anyway. No, it wasn't. <laughs> Skyfall was good. Spectre was uh, just fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yes, yes, that's right. Uh, point is, you know that old, that, that sort of villain in the chair stroking the white cat? Pastiche? Yeah. Is from the original James Bond movies where Ernst Blofeld was literally that character. And so like Dr. Right. Evil and everything yeah. is like making fun of that. Doctor, Yeah, um, Dr. No, right? Uh, no, Dr. No is a different... Uh, no, I don't remember. I think, he, I think he's in Diamonds Are Forever. And Goldfinger? Oh, I'm, so I'm just guessing. He's in like the Sean Connery totally era. Different. This right. dude that plays Ernst Blofeld, you'd know his face if you saw him, maybe. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. He, he, he sort of appears in a couple of the films as like the grand architect behind whatever Bond is yeah. getting fucked with. So he's almost... I saw an article recently that was sort of comparing him to like James Bond's Moriarty, almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And so with these new Daniel Craig movies that are like a That's reboot the of the whole series. That's the Sherlock Holmes yeah. series. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so with these new movies that are like a like a, re- a soft reboot of the James Bond universe, Christoph Waltz plays that character and he played him in the most recent one. So he's going to appear in this one again. That's and Christoph right. Christoph Waltz is fucking great. Yeah, he's good. Um, also news though that Remy Malek is the villain. 
So there's two villains, but it, I, I can see how that dynamic works, where Remy Malik yeah. is the main villain, but Christoph Waltz is sitting on the, the throne. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the news this week about James Bond, because this movie can't spend a fucking seven days without being in the headlines. Changing directors. Um, yeah. <laughs> is that Remy Malik only accepted the role after he found out that it was originally supposed to be some sort of terrorist character driven by some sort of religious motivation, and he said he wouldn't do it if that was the case. And yeah, they had to come it. on. What a fucking trope. That's fair enough. Yeah, I think that's fair enough, and I think that's... No, I don't know. He said he said that he's of, of Egyptian heritage and he grew up listening to Egyptian music and he loves these people and the culture and he doesn't want to... Um, yeah, they would have done that fuck thing would, yeah. where they made him have an accent despite <laughs> the fact that like you don't need to have an accent to be from a place. And he, yeah. yeah, it would have been... That sounds like it would have... He was avoiding like bullshit. Yeah. So um, that's good. That said though, he said that he thinks his character is great and he thinks the script is really good and he's very excited by it. Okay. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing how Freddie Mercury tries to destroy the world. <laughs> yeah, I was going to I was gonna say like, <laughs> did he think that about Bohemian Rhapsody? Yeah, but, weird. Yeah. Um, just to blaze through a couple of quick headlines here, Baz Luhrmann's doing an Elvis biopic and they're Fuck trying off. to work out who to cast as Elvis. Harry Styles and Ansel Elgort are apparently being considered. I think Harry Styles is pretty good in the movies I've seen him in. Um, yeah, sure. Ansel Elgort I like enough. I don't know. I don't really have much much feeling about that. He was that. the guy who main character of Baby Driver, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. Um, uh, other people that did young s- Elvis that they're doing, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so, yeah. <laughs> other people that did screen tests apparently include Aaron Taylor-Johnson, Austin Butler, and Miles Teller. Miles, Miles Teller would be fucking good. Where the hell is he, man? <laughs> he's doing all he was, doing I stuff. think he's my favorite actor, and I haven't. I feel like I haven't seen him in... He was he he had a fucking great run leading up to Whiplash. I think he's doing something big soon. I don't remember what it is, but he's doing something pretty big at the moment. Oh, he's in the new Top Gun movie. That's it. Yeah, yeah. The only other bit of news I have here to round out the story is that Rip Torn died this week. I don't know him as anything else other than the dude from Men in Black and the dude who says, if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. Oh, um, right. From Dodgeball. Shit. I think it's that guy. I didn't know it was that guy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I so. thought that was Jeff Bridges. I don't think so. I think it's. I think no. I, I think ball. you're right, but happens a lot. I think so, I've just you know. realized that that's not Jeff. <laughs> Damn. Um, how's that? That's the end of the beef. Yeah. Uh, beef bulletin this week. Rip in peace, man. You're welcome. We've kept you all well informed. Uh, should we kick on to a quick little section of for beefness or pleasure yeah, this week, good. boy? All uh, right. So every week, of course, Andrew and I cover some film. We have some very serious beefness to cover on the show this week. Of course, it's mid '90s, and we're both. We both watch it and prepared extensive hot takes. Yeah, um, mine are in the oven. <laughs> but, but of course, our life isn't all beefness. We have a little bit of time for pleasure as well. There might be some stuff that I've watched this week that you haven't, boy. Mm. Might be a bit of a vice versa kind of situation going on. You can tell me about what you've been up to. In an incredible twist, I've been stalking you and filming your room and <laughs> have watched exactly what you have watched. Oh, God, but through the through the window. No, we just online. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... That's what we're doing now. A bit of for beefness or pleasure. Yeah. I can kick it off if you want, boy. Yeah, go for it. I watched the HBO miniseries Chernobyl this week. Oh, that's right. I did it legally as well. Uh, <laughs> wow. Foxtel. That is that is a wow. Yeah. I consider it's HBO. Foxtel now yeah. is that uh, Foxtel streaming service. It's a 10-day free trial, which I think is the shortest free trial of any fucking streaming service. And it's the most expensive yeah, of any streaming like, service. 25 bucks a month. So yeah, that's the thing. You get the shortest amount of time and the most, at the highest stakes, if you forget to cancel it. So yeah. I had to absolutely blaze through this series in like ten days. It's mm. only five episodes. Um, Thanks for your service. So it's it's like five hours altogether. I think it was pretty good. I don't think it's the incredible masterpiece that people are heralding it as. I Mostly, didn't I think it had that much acclaim. It's like the most critically acclaimed, highest viewed show at the moment. Right. On 
uh, like IMDb and all that shit. I think it's very good though. So it's obviously set around the 1980s something. I think 1986 Chernobyl nuclear disaster. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> I think that if you don't know a lot about the disaster, it's probably fascinating. And there's a lot of stuff right. in there that I didn't know as well. Not that I'm like a fanatic for this thing or whatever, but like there's a lot of stuff that I didn't know, even though I consider myself to be vaguely familiar with it anyway um like i think that there'll be a lot of holy shit moments in the first few episodes where shit starts to go down where if you don't know anything about the disaster at all it'll really sort of grab you but for me i found the first couple episodes were kind of frustrating because it was a lot of like people being like yeah you say it's radiation but i'm just gonna go there anyway what's the worst that could happen and the scientist guy over and over gonna be like you'll fucking die what yeah. do you mean? What's the worst that could happen? Yeah, it's, so like, it's, it's fucking gamma radiation. Yeah, yeah. so the, the first three episodes are really just like... It's actually not gamma radiation. I think it is. Is it? Yeah. I thought it was... Well, alpha waves can be stopped by like a piece of paper, and beta waves need like thick clothing, and then gamma rays go through like fe- feet of lead. Well, it doesn't matter. The point is, dangerous shit. And the first three episodes are just like, people don't understand why radiation is dangerous, the movie. Yeah. And it's like various different vignettes of like minor characters they've invented um right uh being fucked up by the like their skin sloughing yeah exactly a lot of graphic shit in like in the hospital of all these people that have been completely fucked up by radiation it's really interesting though so um the vague timeline of events for chernobyl if you don't know much about it is like negligent people didn't really understand what they were doing which led to like a meltdown and there was all these technical problems with the plant because it's fucking russia in the 80s um yeah and it was like a shitty plant that led to this nuclear disaster whereby the nuclear reactor exploded resulting in uh, dangerous amounts of nuclear radiation for thousands of kilometers around the plant in russia um it's the Soviet Union, so they kept it secret for a couple of days until people in Germany were like, yeah, we can't go outside. What's yeah. going on over yeah. there in Russia? Um, <laughs> and so it's it shows that if the sort of show documents their attempts... Because the fallout from it spread a, a pretty long yeah, time. Exactly. Right? Um, yeah, exactly. And so the show really documents how they fixed it and how they solved the problem. But it goes through multiple stages of fuck-ups where like the political wrangling of higher-ups in the Soviet Union leads to the first couple attempts like being completely fucked and it just making the situation worse and they have to like dig giant tunnels under the reactor and they have to like send people in on suicide missions to manually close off valves right. and then they get like robots in on the roof to try and like clear off the rubble um, it's fucked it's, it's so interesting man it's really cool I feel like the more I talk about it the more I think yeah no it is really cool and the period is amazing okay. like it's one of those shows where like I just don't understand how they nail like the 80s Russian aesthetic so believable. Yeah, like how do they go and get all that tech and stuff? Yeah, Yeah. I suppose I have the the luxury of not knowing, not knowing. So like... (laughs) um, Wow, it's really real. Yeah, exactly. Uh, But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, It's really, really good fun to watch. Worth going in on. Worth going in on, I'd say. If you can steal it and steal it, but no, I didn't find it particularly challenging to get through it in a couple weeks on Foxtel and just cancel it. Right. So, cheat the system. Cheat the man. Do that. Absolutely. Especially with that network. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, that's that's my quick little review of Chernobyl. Mm. I meant to go in on Stranger Things this week because that new season's out and I'm really excited for it, but I haven't had a chance to Yeah, go. no, same. Uh, you, you got up to anything this week, boy? No, I've watched a couple episodes of The Sopranos still frantically. Uh, it's, it's one of those things, it's like you don't notice it until you try and actually watch it and you start to give a fuck about it, but I regularly will have to turn off a podcast or whatever because people will start talking. It's like, yeah, it's like in The Sopranos where, and I'm like, fuck, <laughs> fuck, fuck, fuck. <laughs> um, 
that happens a lot. So it's like a very, it's clearly had such a massive cultural impact and I just yeah. kind of haven't ever gone in on it. So I haven't given a shit about it, but it's <laughs> it's a cultural reference for a lot of people. So how far are you through it now? So I'm up to, I'm halfway through the third season and there are six seasons. Is that that so bit where, <laughs> so we're, so we're going to like avoid, we're going to be, we're going to be the safe haven for Soprano spoilers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um. So yeah, just trying to, trying to plug, plug my way through that. Um, before, because now I I am invested in, it. <laughs> and I saw I saw a gif of um, uh, I saw a gif of Tony Soprano. No, it was one of those like experts breaking down a scene where it was Tony Soprano in a hospital, and he's like ripping all this equipment off himself. Yeah, and I remember him going to hospital at one point, so I can't remember if I, I don't think this was the scene that I was thinking of, and I know that like. I'm I'm like piecing together all these different bits of information in my head where I know that people weren't happy with the ending of the series and that must have been a major like plot point and I'm not sure if I've seen it or not so I'm like trying to figure out I'm like oh does he get to-? it's like it's like how I I had the ending of Red Dead two spoiled for me but I didn't know whether or not it was a spoiler but then when it became clear the first like sign that, that might on, have yeah. been a spoiler I was like oh right that that was a spoiler that is what happened and yeah. it does definitely ruin it for me so yeah. I'm hoping that that wasn't it um, but I had well, no warning that this thing was coming I'm up, worried so. that I've given mild spoilers for Chernobyl now um I think people know what happens. It's like. a historical thing. Whatever. Yeah, okay, yeah, 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 for sure. This was this is fictional. I don't know what what happened in this. Yeah. <laughs> in this in this well, event. I, I, so I think the thing with like historical stuff is that like often if you don't know, and that's sort of what I meant with like Chernobyl stuff. I don't know. Whatever. Chernobyl's a ubiquitous yeah, enough okay, event cool. that people know a reactor exploded. So yeah, yeah. No, I reckon, yeah, reckon you find the solutions and stuff are interesting to find out. It doesn't matter. But so you've been watching you've been watching The Sopranos this week, and you <laughs> going all in on that. Yeah, just a couple episodes. I haven't had too much time. But, okay. Um, it's it's progressing. Um, yeah, great show. Uh, definitely, definitely an artifact of its time. But also, and it, you have to remind yourself, because it makes you empathize with the characters so much, especially people who are actually in the family, um, that, like, they're not the good guys. Yeah. And so, like, you'll you'll really like this character. That, that, that's like that Australian movie, fuck, is it Animal Kingdom? Yeah. That does that as well. Yes, yes. You'll really like the character, but then, like, they'll just be... Like there's this one scene where there's this young, there's this young guy, probably the youngest guy in the family, and he's like a rising star in the in the um, uh, in Tony Soprano's particular little section. Yeah. And he he <laughs> he. Want to show where Andrew forgets the word mafia? <laughs> no, because he's not like because it's actually a really complex structure with a lot of like nuance to it. He's not just like a rising star in the mafia. He's like specifically under. Tony's guidance and whatever and like he's in that particular family within okay, the mafia well, so I'm sure yeah. shit not going to there, there are hierarchical things going on anyway so he's like young and he's engaged to this woman that he loves but yeah. like everyone cheats on their wives so Hell he's yeah, doing dog. that all the time oh you mean oh right and it's fine like because well I mean it's not fine but like <laughs> it's, but it's totally normal <laughs> for everyone this so show's like gaslighting you into just normalizing adultery and shit no 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 and it doesn't it doesn't feel that way because every time he does it you're like ah oh, Jesus come on but yeah Every single man is doing it, so it's kind of it's he's not abnormal well, it's, in that way. It kind right? of sounds like the and same way why people like Breaking Bad. Breaking yeah. Bad's the same thing where it follows the bad guys, and you're rooting for the bad guys. And like yeah. whenever they're trying to find Walter, yeah. you're like, oh god, I hope they don't find Walter. I'm like he's a meth dealer. What are we talking about? I mean, yeah, it feels different. Um, and I think one of the like here's my little hot take that I won't expand on very much, but like I think one of the reasons why Breaking Bad is so easy to empathize with the character is because it's an anti-capitalist character where he's like 
breaking laws and making money in a way that you're not supposed to be able yeah, to Yeah, I suppose he's that. been like suppressed by the system. And yeah, so it's in some ways you're like, oh, I can make an exception in my head. Breaking for this Bad guy. is a criticism of the American medical system. But like he That's sort of goes so far, not to get yeah. derail your thing, but he goes so far in Breaking Bad and becomes an actual criminal. Like where yeah. he, he could have jumped off the train at so many points and he just, he, he takes the free pass he's been given yeah. and like uses it what way too much to yeah, the point yeah, where yeah. he no longer has that free pass. Yeah. In it. Um, but this is so like th- just as as an example of like how these characters are uh, are com- complexified. Yeah, in that's a word. Complicated <laughs> in <laughs> the Sopranos is like um, this. This character is so he's he's engaged. Like a lot of the other ones are married, but he's engaged, and th- he really actually cares about this woman, and she is like deeply in love with him. And they're having this, like, little romantic... So, uh, like, often, you know, th- there's this hyper-masculinity that everyone needs to maintain at all these points in time. But when he's alone with her, he's really, like, sweet and vulnerable. And they're talking about, like... They're having this conversation about, like, previous sex they've had with people. And yeah. she was, like, oldest person you've ever slept with. And he's, like, oh, I slept with this other person's mom. And she was, like, you slept with his mom? And he was, like, yeah, for a whole summer. And I was, <laughs> like, well, fuck, he's not... I And I thought in my head, like, he's not going to be particularly happy when she starts talking about stuff because he's got that, like, hyper-masculine jealousy thing going on. Yeah. Yeah, and she's, like, oh, you know Penn and Teller? And he's, like, yeah. And she's, like, yeah, I fucked Penn. Uh, I think and I want to fuck Teller. Uh, no, and she's, like, I didn't want to... <laughs> she's, like, oh, actually, I didn't fuck him. I followed him into the bathroom and, and um, gave him a blowjob. And then this guy, like actually hits her because he's like what the fuck that's not there's like there's no class in that what are you doing and then like this situation gets interrupted by someone coming in the door but it was like you were having this emotional moment it's such a weird you shared yeah. something she shared something and like you became abusive about it, it yeah it, no one is the good guy in this show but you also like but that's just the world that they live in. So it's like you can only fault them so much about that because it's so systemic and endemic that yeah. it's interesting to watch. Anyway, so yeah, good show. Still progressing on it. We'll we'll keep you updated. Oh, groovy. Uh, to round out, Beef is on pleasure. Uh, the new Lion King live action thing is coming <laughs> out and there's been a couple of clips that have been released that have maybe just completely lose faith in the whole film. Like, yep. There's a little clip well, of... Welcome. Yeah, there's a little, there's a little clip of Hakuna Matata where it just looks weird Fucking and gross soulless that like just, just so devoid of any emotion and i sh- i comp- i was like <laughs> hanging out with her folks the other day and like we were like a being the hakuna matata clip from the original and then the new one we watched the new one first and we were like, oh, that's not that bad. And then watch the old one i'm like, oh, that's so much better. Yes. And i think my mom my mom said it's like every frame of the original one is like its own artwork. artwork. Yes. And this new one is just, it just seems It's soulless. just a tracking shot of a fucking wildebeest walking next to a lion. Yeah, exactly. There's it's no not, emotion. It's not imaginative or beautiful. No. Yeah, I don't know. I think that... It yeah. sucks so hard. And the only thing that sucks harder than it is how much fucking money this movie's going to make. Yeah, and I think uh, I can definitely sort of to some degree see where there would be merit in doing a live action version of like Mulan, which they have announced, or mm. Aladdin, because those themselves are imaginative, strange human stories where you can sort of make it a bit psychedelic and make it pop a bit. Right. Whereas if this is just lions in the jungle, you can't you can't do that. 
No. It just has to look like a lion in the jungle, and it's not going to pop to the same level. Like, it it will be weird to have the same color and movement and sort of, like, crazy Disney imagination-type yeah. scenes adapted into live action. So it's just live action. Even you know then, I mean. there's there's so many characters. Like, what are they going to do with... Um... Well, like the Timon and Pumbaa bit where they have, like, the grass skirts and the bugs all over them and they do that hula scene. Yeah. You can't have that in real life. No. It's just going to have to be... De- and so you lose that. Whereas with those live action Disney ones that are real life, you can have that same degree of psychedelic, colorful, mm. imaginative shots adapted to real life. Well, they could so have done something. They could have done something like Zootopia, where it was yeah. just like a, a really, really high definition animated film, completely three D animated yeah. film. But they didn't. They wanted to make it look like fucking footage. Well, and like a Shrek so style animation or something. Yeah, yeah, just like a Disney movie. You know. Yeah. Um, imagine. Imagine if Disney <laughs> did a fucking Disney film. Like, I'm yeah. talking Pix- Disney, Pixar's The Lion King. That would have been and fine. And it's gotten to the point right? where, like, this CG is so it's complicated. Fucked. It has to be more expensive than doing it the old way. Like, Yeah, um, but this is footage, right? This is footage with um, a... Digital stuff. Like, yeah, digital... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, with CG composite put on top yeah. of it. So, I, yeah, but I hate it. So I, what- hate it. <laughs> I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. So I went in on the soundtrack this it. week, and I listened to a bit of the soundtrack, and just because I'm curious to hear like what they did with "Can You Feel the Love Tonight." Yeah, there's new new versions. And of all just songs. can't wait to be king. Um, and I think that I mean Donald Glover is good, Beyonce is good, but Beyonce is doing that like right. like flourishy Beyonce thing that I don't, it's not personally to my taste. Yeah, and Donald Glover is good, after a while, but I think. like yeah, a little bit. Was, yeah, and I think that perhaps my problem is that. I'm so familiar with the original Lion King songs that these feel like cover versions. Right. And they sort of pale in comparison to the originals. And so they, they themselves feel kind of hollow. Yeah. I think. And I don't know. It's like they're good. And if the old versions didn't exist and I wasn't so familiar yeah, the with the old versions. composition is good. It's yeah. just not. Yeah. And like I think one of the be- one of the best bits is the Circle of Life, which I sort of I listen to and it sounds exactly the same as the old one. They use the same foundation with. No, it's you. exactly the same track. The Circle of Life song. Oh. It's like I listen to their albums, like, oh, this is great. And then I realize, like, oh, this is just the original one. And they've just copy pasted it to the new movie. That's fucking bizarre. I think. If it's not, that somewhere they've got someone's, like, vo- I think I've got a good memory for, like, little vocal flourishes yeah, and things. Yeah, you can tell when it's, it's like, um, like a spot the difference. Yeah, and I th- I listen to it, and I, th- I think it's exactly the same. So, right. like, I caught this and be like, oh, the only song I really liked is the only one that is just the one off the old album. Right. <laughs> That's, I think so no, I, don't I, I don't even think I'll see it, man. Like, no, I don't think so. I, I don't want to give them money for doing this. No. I mean, it's well, my little personal project. I was, I was excited to hear "Can You Feel a Love Tonight" with Donald Glover and Beyonce, and I don't think it's that good. So fuck the rest of the movie. Yeah. Um. But even then, if the soundtrack is the only thing that you're hanging out for, I think that's a yeah. damning with faint praise. The yeah, rest exactly. Of the film. Uh, no, I could. I, like, I, like I said, the fact that it's you can't have the animated parts of the movie that are fun animated. Imagine the bits adapted to real life for these lions, yep. for, for the animal things. It'd be weird. Whatever. Yeah. That's Beef and Pleasure this week. Yeah. Should we launch into the main segment? Yes. Talking about let's do it. Jonah Hill's mid-90s. Mm. Came out in 2018. Yeah. I missed it when it was... In, I think in Australia it might have come out earlier Bit this year. Bit of a year. weird release, I think, here. Yeah. yeah. In, in Australia, I think it came out earlier this year, but we, we missed it. Yeah. Um, I think we originally wanted to do it in the cinemas and just, <laughs> just drop the ball. Yeah. But it's finally out on, not streaming services, but I rented it for like $5 on I iTunes. I rented it on Google Play, so it's on a bunch of those main ones. So it's very accessible. I yeah. really enjoyed it, and I'm glad we covered it this week. Yeah. Should we launch into a bit about what it's about? 
Yeah, sure. So this is, uh, as you alluded to at the start, uh, this is a, a a film about what it was like to grow up as a young teenage boy in the skate parks and skate culture in LA during 1996, but just generally in the, in, the, in the middle of the 90s. Yeah. Um, and kind of, I guess, takes a look at what the what the what the pressures were in home and social spheres around that time for a boy who was trying to trying to figure himself out and grow up so it's like essentially a coming of age story it is exactly that yeah yeah, yeah. um so yeah i guess the main character's name is stevie played by sunny solchik or solchik people probably know best from killing of a sacred deer yes and i think he's been in something else right uh, he was also Atreus in God of War. Oh, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So the new God of War game, he he mocapped and was the face of the young son character. And he was really good in it. Yeah, the, he was great. And the actual actor himself is thirteen. Yes. And he looks like eight. Yeah, he's <laughs> yeah. So Jonah Hill cast him because he was apparently someone that I mean, it, this was uh, a lot of the stuff that we we read a really interesting Slate interview yeah uh, with Jonah Hill about this film. If I can find um, it, I'll link it. But um, yeah, I've I've great. got it up. Um, but he he said he wanted someone that looks like he was ten feet tall on the inside and could kind of stand deal with yeah exactly yeah. stand up for himself and and he felt like Sonny had that had that energy and that that spirit to him but also looked terribly young for the situation that he was in yeah and so, i, I think and a I lot think of a really good job of that i think a lot of what this film is doing is showing this little kid that's sort of been thrown into the deep end of social situations and sort of hanging out with kids that are several years older than him yeah. and trying to appear cool and there's all this sort of like He's anxiety the group, yeah. yeah anxiety and social pressure to sort of fit in yeah uh, and then a lot of what that means is that he's put into quite intense situations and sort of shrugs it off as a way of fitting in and appearing like he's cool with whatever the kids are doing. Yeah. I think it says a lot about sort of belonging and masculine friendships and sort of what it's like for boys to make friends with boys yeah. through childhood. Yeah. Um, and the, also, like, it, it, it's a very critical look at uh, masculinity in yeah, American, I'll say... American capitalist masculinity during this era, right? <laughs> I don't necessarily think that everything has to be linked back to capitalism. For me, this was uh, more like a that's incorrect. A social <laughs> for me, this was more like a like a social dynamic masculinity kind of thing. And no, like, I I mean that in like in the way that I mean it, it. It was that, but also that there's this constant pressure because um, materialistic stuff was so important in during that era and you needed to have stuff to be cool. Yeah, like, for instance, so. he has this board that he buys of his brother when he's really excited to start skating and the board that he buys... It's like is, a SpongeBob SquarePants is one of those, board or something. Yeah, and it's like... Um, it doesn't. It, it's one of those ones that's got the weird, tor- like torpedo, like atom bomb shape to it. So it's got a flat bit at the back. It looks like a kid's fucking it's, skateboard. It's, it's yeah. like bright neon green and pink. And people are like, you can't fucking skateboard with that thing. You look like a fucking loser. You have to yeah. buy one that looks exactly like ours. And like those are different, but that's not why they care. You know, it's about appearances, and appearances cost money to upkeep, and therefore I think it's a it's a capitalist process. So that's yeah. not as much of a focus of the film. I can definitely see how you'd link it in. Exactly. I think it's not the the focus of the film, but I think that's more... I think that's a subtle difference where for me that's more a comment on like the materialism, which I suppose inherently is linked to capitalism, but when it's it's about kids and it's about these 12-year-olds, I think it's less about 
the way that capitalism is influencing these kids and more about like kids are shallow and kids don't really care about who you are. Kids just care about your stuff kind of thing to some degree. Well, like kids, I, I think it's more of a commentary on the shallowness and the lack of emotional depth that these kids have rather than it is a commentary and a criticism of capitalism as its main focus. I didn't say it was his main focus. It yeah. is, but it is, <laughs> it is a a constant background noise throughout this whole film. I, think. I suppose. So. I suppose you can't. I suppose if it's something that's a foundation of our society, you can't really ignore it. But yeah, I I, yeah. I, I noticed a lot of stuff where I was like, well, that is a criticism of like the the rampant materialist attitudes mm. in during that period of time okay, when fine. like it was the the era of like kids like merchandising and and um, franchisement yeah. and yeah, all that sort of stuff. So. It, if we start from the very beginning of the movie, of course, the film is yeah. called Mid-90s and it does some very a very good job at scene setting <laughs> rather than just using its title as a crutch. Yeah. Like, the whole film is in 4x3. Yes. Which and is an interesting creative choice. on 35mm, it I is? believe. Oh, okay, I, did, I didn't notice that, but sure. I think it um, was because it has that real film grain yeah, effect okay. to it. Yeah. It, it, um, it, st- it starts, I think the first shot is of like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles bedspread. He's playing SNES. Yep. It's got all these cassette tapes and things. Um, again, the baggy 90s clothing, a lot of West Coast hip-hop is the soundtrack to the whole film. Yeah. Um, you, you get a real stereotypical 90s kind of vibe from yeah. it that's and really not, well done. I think people... like not we've, like a pastiche We've had the way, benefit really. of watching a bunch of these movies and it gives you a really good gradient uh, and you're like, oh yeah, that was... <laughs> that was 90s because a yeah. lot of what we... Having been... Well, like, we were born... In the early mid nineties, yeah, so we didn't really live through. No, this, no, we had the tail end of it, but then what we think of as the nineties was actually the early two thousands. Yeah. A lot of the time, <laughs> we, we need to. We, we're going to get that. Yeah, we get to early noughties Australian nostalgia. Yeah, exactly. This was actually the nineties. Yeah, yeah, which was a different beast from what a lot of people our age kind of yeah. come to think of as I like oh yeah that's 90s culture yeah. I yeah. suppose this is for like kids born in like 1980 this is for something. kids born in the yeah exactly born in the mid 80s yeah yeah, uh, yeah so already like the I don't know whether they <laughs> get a fancy boy word like mise-en-scene out there but it does that really well um, yep and it sort of sets the scene in this as this this kid in this dysfunctional family with um and a, like an abusive older brother yep. that's the sort of stereotypical older brother character and that's played very well um, by Lucas of, Hedges I believe yeah it um, does this who, well yeah I think it's an, it's a really interesting choice to cast this dude he was in uh, Lady Bird and also Three Billboards um, oh really I didn't even notice that yeah and also in Moonrise Kingdom like he's he plays a really soft hearted character a lot of the time right and I think casting him as being like this brutal thug, this fucked up, yeah, exactly, like abusive older brother was a really interesting choice. Yeah, and um, Hill said when he was casting him that uh, he wanted someone who had that really soft kind of appearance and and um, emotional state, but that needed to act this role. And that's definitely what you get out of it. The it, character yeah, really feels like the older brother is has sort of been cornered into play acting as this tough dude. Yeah. And when hardened, like, and you yeah. get you get a lot of moments of vulnerability in the film where it seems like the older brother doesn't have many friends and it's kind of lonely no. and it sort of put this up as a facade. Yeah, and and so like they're living without their father as well, so he doesn't have a good like paternal influence. And yeah, he's struggling really hard with that. So yeah, that's yeah. really clever. Um, and so the the vague plot arc of the film is twelve year old kid wants to be cool and have more friends, meets these skate kids at a shop, sort of models himself as a skate kid. 
gets this skateboard and sort of steals money from his mom with his brother to buy the skateboard. Um, starts drinking and smoking and things to fit in. And most of the film is just about the antics and these kids hanging out and sort of yeah. playing off each other and being friends. And it's it's a lot about this kid sort of learning how to be himself and learning how to love himself kind of thing. That's what's happening on screen a lot of the time, but sort of what that's what that's effectively doing is, yeah, letting letting Sonny grow up and, and figure himself out and start to form, like, a network of friends around him. His first, like, I've chosen these people yeah. network of friends rather than just, like, those incidental friends that you've sort of come to have along the... Along the way when you're that age. Yeah, and I think a lot of what the film is doing is sort of, and it, I think Jonah Hill mentioned it in that interview, is just sort of uh, getting, showing this kid's progression to sort of appreciating how others feel about stuff and appreciating, um, yeah, other people's emotions and other people's experiences through life, which I feel like is a common and loose sort of thread of like becoming less sort of self-focused. Like they, they talk a lot about how, well, Johnny Hill talks in that interview a lot about how skateboarders in the nineties were like the ultimate outsiders of society. Yes. And so a lot of these kids came from different, like a, a lot of the kids were very poor. And one of the, one of the kids that Stevie's friends is like, all his friends think he's really dumb and really poor. And there are like black kids and white kids. Um, and like homeless people all hanging out in these skate parks and yeah. sort of talking to each other as equals. It's a, a a big social unifier. Yeah, exactly. And so yeah. he t- he talked about like the idea that he thinks it that he thought that like skating because they were all these like viewed as these like outsiders in society. It was like the ultimate equalizer. Yeah. And you could sort of like have this thing where like it was like a rare opportunity for kids of all sorts of different socioeconomic backgrounds and different people, not just kids, to sort of relate to each other and see where they were on and sort of see where they were, where they're at, yeah, kind of thing. I don't know. I feel like it's kind of hard to describe, but a lot of, a lot of it goes back to uh, stereotypical portrayals of masculinity as being kids, uh, boys that don't really share their emotions very much and don't really talk in a very deep way about how they're feeling. No, there's this really interesting uh, in- intra comparison within this movie of so like he, Sonny kind of like get, finds his way into this group. By yeah. striking up a friendship with the second youngest member of the group, uh, Ruben, and Ruben is like the you find out later like the most toxic form of that type of masculinity, where like like he gives Stevie a a board, or he like gives him a deal to buy a board, and Stevie's like, "Oh, thanks, man." And he's like, "Don't say thanks. That's fucking gay." Yeah, like never don't thank people, and then. Stevie's kind of like trying to think of what to say and often he'll say something that's just like sharing a thought or whatever and Ruben will be like, shut the fuck up, man. Don't say things like that. And he, he's like already trying to be like the strong, silent type and he's like 14 years old. It like really emphasizes that like culture of masculinity where you make friends through like negativity. There's like a culture of put downs and negativity Yeah, in the movie. Yeah. That's when stuff's happening. But, uh, you know, the default state should be like silence and yeah. or, or like action, but not any kind of emotional interaction. But then later, Ray, who's the oldest member of the group and like almost constantly viewed as like the coolest member of the group. Yeah. Does something and Stevie's like, I know I'm not supposed to say thanks, but I want to. And he's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, you say thanks. That's just basic manners. manners. (laughs) Yeah. And you realize like, oh, okay, the whole group's not like that. He just had only really interacted with Ruben. Yeah. And Ruben is like 
already really fucked up. Well, it, it comes so, back to like a, like yeah. a, a basic human self consciousness anxiety thing that I think is a lot stronger when you're a kid, where like one thing that one person says can have a huge effect you'll, on yeah, you. Yeah, you'll read into it a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it happens a lot with this kid, where like mm. he, he reads into everything that everyone says so much because he's not comfortable with who he is. Well, he just he's so desperate to fit in with yeah. this group that he's terribly afraid of doing the wrong thing and just wants to be like them. So yeah. yeah. He's happy to emulate a lot of their behaviors, but then yeah. it turns out that the one that he wants to emulate because it's the first one that he has the contact with is is not the best example well, of what to emulate. Yeah, I really, I really appreciated the way it sort of depicted uh, Stevie's like the little kid Stevie's emo- emotional and sort of social insecurities. Um, in the way that later on in the film, it sort of shows you that the older kids have exactly the same insecurities. Yeah. So when Ray Stevie's sort of worried about how he comes across with his friends and he's sort of like, oh, I'm sorry for being weird or whatever. Later on in the movie, when Ray's... They have fuck names. I think one of the characters' names is fuck shit. Yeah, one of the characters' names <laughs> is fuck shit because he always says fuck, fuck shit. shit. <laughs> um, yeah. So but, uh, fuck shit and Ray are the two older kids and they're good friends. Um, and there's a whole sequence later in the movie where Ray feels really insecure when they're at a party about how fuck shit's behaving and he's like apologizing to the older cooler kids there about like yeah. oh I'm sorry about my friend sorry he's about just, my he's mate, just yeah. like this uh, and just the way in which Ray was behaving in exactly the same insecure anxious kind of way as Stevie was was mm. kind of just like oh no everyone's like that and what don't, I think this don't movie, worry about it what I think this movie did really yeah yes yeah Um, and I think that just that, that just got me thinking about one of my favorite aspects of the movie which is the way that it shows you how there's often a big disconnect between, and I, I always link this back to um, thinking about the way that people drink, right? Because when yeah. you're a teenager, you're starting to experiment with alcohol or whatever, and you drink it before you're supposed to, like legally. Um, and and then like everyone sort of follows this normative pattern of like starting to drink, it being exciting, then drinking too much, experimenting with that and then it's sort of plateauing down again and that's a normal part of the coming of age process right but then you also know that later on in life these people exist who are alcoholics yeah and it's sort of like there's no there's there's such a huge like void between those two behaviors that just never really is critically examined and i think what this film did really well was start to examine well, you can see those types of behaviors even in people who are 17, right? Yeah, like, and it's, it's interesting to watch this behavior go unchecked by all these kids. Exactly, because they're just, they don't know to intervene, really. They don't, they, they don't have the ability or the foresight to be able to see that this is a problematic pattern of behavior un- until it starts to actually really impact on all of them. And I think a lot of the film is, what it does best is it shows all these different problematic parts of masculine behavior yeah in these sort of friendship circles that often goes unchecked and the film deliberately doesn't 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 correct any of it at all yeah like and it just but it does at the uh, towards the end of the film it does and no spoilers yeah. but towards the end of the film it starts to show you kind of these branching paths according to the choices that these people are making of how like if at that age you choose really like you choose to have no vision or like you don't, or maybe not choose to have no vision, but like people who are driven and have aspiration and determination start to find opportunities. 
and people who don't have that drive don't find those opportunities. And so yeah. you start to see like people getting left behind already, which yeah. I think is a really interesting thing to look at because it's often you often start from a place where those people have already been left behind. Yeah, and it starts from and this you don't place get of to neglect. See that happening. Yeah, yeah it exactly. Starts, it starts from this place of neglect where we're watching these kids go through all these problematic issues yep. that don't get resolved in the movie really at all. No, none of them have the ability to do that. Well, yeah, and all like there's this like the mum who's kind of like absent in a lot of the film yep. and a lot of these other kids who come from like poor Dabney. homes. What? The mum's name. Dab- God, that Dabney. can't be her name. Dabney. Whatever. Um, but so, like, I thought that was really effective a criticism of that kind of masculine friendship culture. Just the way in which like there are like all the friends were like constantly insulting each other and putting each other down and like talking down and insulting Stevie and that never really changed that much. Um and then like a lot of like the kids use the kids say faggot a lot. Yeah. Oof. Which is like it's, it's like a real really yeah, it's up. like a really harsh <laughs> word. But it reminded me of how recently kids have stopped it just reminded me of how recently in my own childhood my circle of friends realized how unacceptable it was yeah. to say. And to hear it said and thrown around without being checked at all throughout the film was really like, like oh, sh- oh shit. Like that, yeah. that's, that's even an example of like a simple behavior that's so hurtful and so destructive to like any kids who are questioning their sexuality. Yeah. And even that little behavior isn't being checked in the film. In fact, in this interview, um, Jonah Hill was talking about the idea that he had a scene originally where... They talked about like, oh, maybe we shouldn't say faggot anymore um, because like it's bad or whatever. Yeah, because he was worried about how it how would be it. perceived in the film. I yeah. suppose in the same way as like Tarantino uses the N-word a lot in Django. Yeah, I think the difference being that this was trying to... Like, it's like emulating the, c- the culture of the time. Exactly, no, I yeah. think it's the same. Like, because like I mean, Tarantino oh, in, using in it, Django. Sorry, yeah, Tarantino yeah. using it himself is weird. But like yeah. in the movie, the point is like, well, it's that's what happened in the 1800s or the 1700s or whatever. And yeah. the same, in the same thing here, he said in that interview that like he wanted to have some scene where they like talk about the problematic use of the the slur, and one of the producers or cinematographers or something on the film is gay and said like, look, man, if that's not the sort of thing you would have done. Back then, it's almost more insulting to sort of rewrite history and and sort of say that you were considering it when you weren't. Yeah, he he was like, would you have actually had that conversation? Yeah, and And he he was like, no. And he was like, well, then don't put it in the fucking movie for exactly those reasons. And so I think think it's a really good, and it makes it feel a lot more sort of hard-hitting and closer to home. Yeah, um, and it, it's an example of that sort of like problematic behavior these kids have, and sort of problematic environments they're being exposed to that aren't addressed. I think that's one interesting difference in this film between this and a few of the other uh, coming of age stories that we've seen recently. Is this is this film pulls its punches the least? Yeah, it it, it is. You are right in there, unfiltered, all the time. Yeah, and um, I, I guess maybe like. Was it in, was it eighth grade that has the scene in the car where like yeah. they pull over? Yeah. That was like close, but like a sexual encounter. That's yeah, a bit that's yeah. R- that's really rough. But I think that was close. But like this this film was the most raw that you actually I, I felt that you experienced these things, and it, it's that's that's the case with all aspects of it. So like the language that they use, the experiences that they have, it chose to try and be as true to real life, which is rough and yeah. difficult and really fucked up. Well, yeah, well, without getting too much into spoilers then before we f- finish off our review, there are s- similar scenes in mid nineties, as you said, that 
definitely feel like they're not pulling any punches. And they're sort no. of making a pretty hardcore commentary on the culture they're showing in the film and the sort of friendship circle they're showing in the film and the sort of the way in which dudes talk to each other. The best parts of this film were sort of watching the kids interact because aside from the fact that we're saying, oh, it's just dramatic, problematic shit, a lot of it's really fun and the kids are really funny to talk to and sort of their dynamic is entertaining. Yeah. Um, all the kids have their own sort of issues and their own personalities and funny situations that they get put in. <laughs> I think uh, apparently a lot of the casting in this movie of the skater kids was like actually just skater kids. Yeah. And they feel really like weird and unique and genuine because of that. They're very, they're some of the most like realistic characters that I think they I've seen. They do feel kind of weird and ones. it's that same kind of outsider-y kind of thing. Uh, fuck shit has this long blonde curly hair and my favorite joke in the whole film was when there's some like black security guard that's telling him to get out yeah, of this I think locked area. Black, right? Whatever. Yeah. And they're, they're using the N-word at him and he goes like, I don't think you can say the N-word, you Sheryl Crow looking <laughs> motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so like, Good this shit. they're trying to rinse the security yeah. guard and the security guard ends up kind of like giving, giving it back to them pretty, <laughs> pretty well. <laughs> sort of like, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, it's, it's good. good. It's but good like, fun. Even I found Ray's voice. He had a very odd, soft voice. And yeah. You you it doesn't it sort of doesn't really marry up with what you come to expect of his character because he's sort of the leader of the group. But then it's it feels very real because of that because it it he he doesn't feel like someone someone that's been it doesn't feel like a character that's been constructed to fulfill that role. Yeah. It feels like a character that existed anyway that's been placed in that role because of who he is basically. Yeah. Um which I thought was a really interesting yeah, I don't know. It just made it feel really genuine. Like I said, a lot of this film feels really, really genuine. Yeah, there are a couple bits in the film where I thought the pacing was a bit off, and that I thought, because it's only like 90 minutes, I thought mm. that perhaps there could have been a lot more showing Stevie's character progression from like timid little kid to like badass skater kid um, that made it a bit hard to be believable for me. Like, I think that, like, I know that Johnny Hill was looking for this kid that looks really young, but he looks like a fucking cartoon character with all these normal looking skater kids and then this fucking. Twelve-year-old uh, actor in this giant hockey jersey and like baggy beanie and shit. Like it yeah. kind of it it looked like a caricature of what I. I but that I, was I his family be... was poor and they were hand-me-downs from his older brother. Yeah, but like I I don't know I I would have wanted. I didn't find it very believable the progression that this kid went on so quickly. And I suppose part of it is like he's pretending to be someone he's not or whatever. But like mm. I, I just remember distinctly there's this sort of scene about sort of 20 minutes to half an hour into the film when the mum has a, a speech that's like, I don't even know who you are anymore to this little kid. I'm like, what do you mean? It's been like a week. What are you talking about? Mm. And it didn't really feel, the pacing didn't feel like he'd gone on this huge progression. Maybe because I hadn't really seen much of who the kid was before or like, I don't know. I suppose part of the point is like when you're young, you don't really feel like you have your own kind of personal identity or I whatever. Didn't, I didn't really read that scene as the mum, like uh, as as Dabney, like <laughs> kind of accurately appraising what was going on. I felt like that was more of a like her personal response to her own distress and just being like, "You're still a little kid, and sometimes I feel like you are trying so hard to grow up and be distant, and so." I don't recognize you when you do that, but that's also not like you're still a little kid. Yeah, but I, f I feel like that's a lot, a lot, a lot softer, and it would have been a lot more nuanced and better if she said that. But I think literally the scene was like, yeah. I don't even know who you are. I think she was angry and was just miscommunicating. Yeah, I think that's that how they, I read it. I don't know. I, I think that her reaction in that scene felt like she thought that he'd undergone some sort of hardcore change that hadn't really been represented properly on screen. Mm. I think you're. I think you're meant to see that as very exaggerative and kind of not, as I said, a very like emotional 
uh, over the top response yeah. to what's actually going on. I suppose I just I just felt like they were, it was such a short film mm. that they could, it was only literally like ninety minutes or yeah. ninety five minutes or something. I feel like somewhere in the mid nineties. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Another episode of Beef Station. Um, wrap no, it up. I, I just think that he had another 20 minutes to play with where he could have extended those scenes out a bit more and given it a lot more emotional payoff and a lot more of a progression to have those scenes have a bit more payoff. I, I'm just trying to think because I have to yeah, sort of compare uh, it with other, other uh, coming-of-age films that I've seen recently and other coming-of-age films that I really like. And I just think that those do it a lot better. Like I think that Perks of Being a Wallflower, for example, does that progression a lot better. We didn't spend a lot of time... Alone with Sunny, for sure. No, at all. Exactly. Interesting. Okay. Because I feel like, so with eighth grade, we're, there's a lot of screen time of Elsie just being on her phone. We get a lot of stuff of like yeah. her getting ready. And so you sort of see who she is as a person. Yeah. And then you see how that changes when she's outside of that sort of isolated bubble. Mm. Or how she like relates to other people. Whereas I think what this all we see is how he relates to other people. And we don't really get much of an understanding of who he is as a person. It's almost just like his, his personality is mirroring whatever's happening at the time. Yeah, and there's okay. no, there's no insight into who the character is as a person. Right, like all we you see is we're like not privy to like no. private, private, solitary moments. I mean, you see a couple scenes early on where like he tries to give his brother a gift and the brother doesn't care, and he you see what kind of music the kid's into and that he likes the Ninja Turtles and snares, but like that's it. And it also feels that like those bits are part of the scene setting rather than part of the character development. There are a couple of scenes where so like interesting that because th- these are the only ones that come to mind that are examples of what you're talking about. But um, scenes where he punishes himself for doing the wrong thing by, I- I'm thinking of... Like the strangulation um, scene? Yeah, so he, yeah. at one point, like... He's, like, so frustrated that he's trying to, like... He tries to himself choke himself with a... Yeah, and, and that did something where I was like, oh, did I ever do that? I don't think it comes across like, as intense as we're making it sound. It's it's it To me, that felt more like a punching the wall kind of moment or like a hitting yourself in the yeah, head kind of moment. But he also, like, um, he does something at one point and he knows he's doing the wrong thing. So he grabs a comb or, like, a brush and he, like, really roughly brushes the shit out of his the top of his thigh. Oh, yeah, so it's weird. like he's punishing himself in advance. He's like doing a mere culpa because <laughs> he knows that he's going to do the wrong thing and he needs to ease his own sense of guilt. And so yeah. he thinks that by hurting himself, he's paying for it. And so like he's... He, that punishment is yeah. like, is pre-absolving himself. I suppose and I liked I liked the, those scenes. Yeah, I liked them too. And I, I do think they did give a bit of insight into like, A, this this child's sense of justice and like punishment systems and how that works. Like yeah. he's still a fucking kid, but he's trying to exercise autonomy. He's just doing it in such a misguided way. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, I thought that was really, um, really interesting. Like, but you're right. Yeah. It's a very shallow sense of who he is as a character. Yeah, I suppose. And I would be, I, I'm not convinced that if it did have more of those in it, that mm. it would actually make the movie better. But I agree that that's an interesting concept yeah. that, yeah, definitely could have done some work. There's an interesting discussion to be had around, and maybe it's not something that we have enough notes on, around the depiction of the female characters in the film. Because I read a couple uh, criticisms that were saying that they're only depicted as like sexual objects or yeah. objects of conquest, which I suppose is a commonly problematic depiction of female characters. And I suppose the counter-argument to that could be yeah, but that's the whole point. The yes. whole point is that these girls are real characters and the the boys don't see them like that at all. I think that's it. I think we're watching this film through the lens of Sonny's emotional yeah. journey. Well, and there's a scene where it's just the girls talking yeah. and they're talking about um, 
like sexual stuff that's happened at this party and it's just them there mm. and there's like a something to be said for that scene not really passing the Bechdel test but it's in the same scene and it just happened I think they're just talking about what just happened on screen I'm not convinced by that criticism I think the whole movie is supposed to be sort of viewed through this like masculine identity lens yeah and that it's supposed to be a, a criticism of that. Women are used in these circles, not just in the film. The film depicts this, but women are used as social currency and yeah. something to be used to gain credit within Your social group. circles. Yeah, yeah it's like, right. who's the hottest person that you've done something with? Like, like yeah, you fucked up, bro. Good job. Yeah, exactly. Shit. Like, you scored points. Yeah. Um, and that's horrible. And again, it's just another way that I feel like Jonah Hill is critically looking at yeah. these problematic and critically representing but very truthfully representing these problematic institutional yeah. issues. I definitely feel like that one scene where it was only the women after the party that were just like, oh, that was weird, but he's so hot and so so is he, he's hot too. Like, I, I think that was, that scene felt a bit strange. The idea that like, that was all they were talking about. Yeah, I think if the film had any space between those two scenes and that was what was in that scene, it would be really fucking weird. Like if the next day those girls were still talking about what happened and there was a lot of distance, that would be like, well, yeah, they're, they're going to be talking about some other shit. I suppose but it's like a circular argument because my my argument would be, well, the, the only point of the female characters in the film is that it's a film about male friendship and the female characters are there as a sexual conquest mm. to be a criticism of that. And then that's why the only conversation they have is right after that scene yeah. to further criticize that. But then it's like, right, well, then then you really are saying the only reason why the female characters are in the film is for that. Yeah. There's, it's definitely a complex... Represent. This is getting like not not into spoilers, but there are a few moments where the mum is treated strangely. Yeah. Um. I, again, I think this is... I, I stand by my my reading of it that it's just still viewed through like the lens of these weird maladjust maladjusted men and the fact that the depiction of the women is weird and maladjusted is, is, is a part in of that. the emotional is through the emotional lens of those characters but like yeah. yeah for instance there's a conversation between um Sonny and his older brother where he the older brother is like talking about oh mum was different before you came around like i think the bottom line is like mum used to fuck heaps that and was a really weird scene, and it, it's it, it and it's really weird. And you don't really know what the what the older brother's point. Yeah, is there. exactly. But I think that was it. It wasn't like it didn't feel like miss. It didn't feel like bad writing. I was just sitting there being like, the brother is just such a fucking weirdo, and yeah. because he he has no like touchstone or reference point of how to fucking understand women properly. Yeah. He's actually a huge loner and kind of weird, and yeah. doesn't really know how to treat like doesn't really know how to interact properly with these women. So he is actually still trying to gain social credit, but he's now trying to gain social credit with his younger brother through like sexual exploitation of his mom. Yeah, it's and weird. that's super messed up, but it's not messed up because like Jonah Hill's dropped the ball on the writing. It's yeah. it's a very interesting, strange character moment, yeah. basically. I suppose so, it would it would have uh, yeah, been nice if there were other other scenes in the film that show the character having some sort of positive interaction with women. That's not yeah, and maybe that could have been like more screen time. But maybe, so. but maybe, like, but then again, like the whole point of the movie seems to be presenting all these problematic and fuck situations that never yeah. get resolved. Yes, and then the film just sort of tying itself up, 
without properly giving closure to most of the fucked stuff you've seen going on. Yep. It's like, yeah, it's all part of our childhood and we just ignore it. Let's, yep. let's move on. And, and a I movie think- is just allowed to be about one thing and this yeah, was right. about... The masculine The dudes, yeah. skater dudes, exactly. Yeah. So I think to some degree you could say that's like, yeah, well, he doesn't want to write a film about about that. Yeah, exactly. So I, I don't buy that's that criticism. Man. But um, but the way that women are reflected and utilized in this film is not problematic because of the film itself, but it shows the how problematic it the the cultural interaction with women is. That's That's what I think, and that's what I got when I was watching the movie. And... I'm usually the first person to be like, <laughs> this movie was fucked in the way that it treated women. I don't yeah. think that was the case in this film. I just think it was trying to be about a specific thing. Okay. So, yeah. I think we've done enough to sort of wrap up our review of the film and launch yeah, well, into let's any give spoils final, we might want to do. Our final thoughts on it for people who haven't seen it and want to. Yeah, cool. Um, I think that this film fits into a spectrum that we've had recently of coming-of-age stories. There yeah. have been a bunch, like 8th grade, Ladybird, Boyhood... Um, there's one that I'm forgetting about, but uh, way way back. Oh no! Oh, spectacular now. Yeah, right. One. That's um, a really good one. Fuck. Yeah, so it came out like seven years ago, man. Yeah. So uh, yeah, this is just another little, little, tiny little niche, um, but the way that it's chosen to distinguish itself is in its focus, its setting. Um, and it's, I suppose, cinematographic choices. It's really unique. The 4 by 3 aspect ratio, the 90s setting. Yeah. That we, I don't think I've had another coming-of-edge film that's had this exact kind of feel. They all feel unique, mm. but I think this one specifically feels very creatively unique in a really exciting way. Yeah. So uh, I think it's interesting to watch another, see another slice out of that spectrum. Yeah. Um, and I think this does an extremely faithful recreation of... Specifically, skater culture in the LA 90s. And because that was so pervasive to our culture, there's a lot there to kind of emotionally yeah. em- empathize with. I think yeah. if, you're, if you're a young boy, there's a lot of stuff that you'll see and, and think like, yeah, I remember, I remember feeling that way. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested to hear how women feel it compared to their experiences. Young Me too. Girls. I feel like there's, I don't think there's a lot in it. No, because this, <laughs> this might be an interesting movie to watch without much of an empathetic platform, I suppose. Mm. But it it would be interesting to yeah, to gain insight into like how how men interact at a very young age because I feel like this was pretty I think this is a pretty pre- pretty reasonably accurate. Yeah, I yeah. think so. And I think I think that's that's a lot of the films you mentioned are Or at least are like, when we were growing up. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. I think a lot of the films you mentioned are like, because a lot of these coming-of-age films, a lot of them are a lot funnier and a lot more whimsical mm. and a lot of them are sort of larger than life. This feels like a very true-to-life, accurate, dramatic yeah. interpretation These moments feel like they've themes. been pulled from someone's life. Yeah. yeah, they feel a lot more like documentary-like than dramatic and whimsical and funny. I think yeah. and there are funny moments, but it's only because the kids are funny and kids can be funny. Like, mm. I think that... Yeah, it, it, there's a very broad spectrum of coming-of-age films, and this fits into the more sort of hardcore dramatic section of them, like I think eighth grade might. Yeah, I would yes. probably relate it most similarly in tone, perhaps, to eighth grade, even though eighth grade itself was completely different in terms of the emotions it showed the kid going through. Yeah, second maybe to Boyhood, where I think yeah, I it was... Yeah, just that, that Boyhood also tried to go for that really realistic, yeah. um, this-happened way. Um, but I guess Boyhood had that really blown out time scale as yeah. well, so a bit um, different. In terms of Better Than Worse, then, I had trouble thinking of a better than. I thought this film was, in terms of coming-of-age films, I think it's one of my favourite genres of film, mm. and I didn't really think this was an amazing film compared to my favourites. I think my favourite coming-of-age films are probably still uh, The Way Way Back 
and perks of being a wallflower. Oh yeah. So okay. I think this is probably worse than those two. This was going for yeah a different thing too, where, where the the main character is much younger. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that maybe if I had to compare it most similarly to the films that we just mentioned that are similar in tone, I think I didn't like it as much as I like Boyhood, and I didn't like it as much as I liked Eighth Grade. Yeah. But I, these are all in a very sort of top bracket somewhere. Yes. So I don't. I think this is probably at the bottom of a good pile for me. Right, yeah, I, I think I'd agree. I, I, yeah, the more that I think about it, I mean, Boyhood's one of my favorite movies. Yeah, um, I felt such a strong, such a strong connection to that movie, and, and Eighth Grade I enjoyed more. Right. I think so. Yeah, and um, I, yeah, well, I think you're right. I agree. I think I liked the ca- the setting, and I liked the characterization of the the place, and of the general relationship between all the characters. But I think for the reasons we mentioned before about the in my opinion, like the poor characterization of the main character and the sort of the, the way the whole film felt kind of rushed, I felt right. like I didn't really relate to the character as much as I did in those other two films. And those other two films are a lot longer and they're set over a greater period of time, like Boyhood, obviously, but then like eighth grade as well, you get a lot more invested in that character and you see a lot of growth that yeah. I didn't really see in this film. Right. To the point where like it almost seems like the whole point of the film was that there is no growth. And for me, that didn't mm. really give me the kind of closure that I think is the reason why I enjoy the other two films. Right. Not that I want a happy ending, just that like I feel like it seems like this film wasn't really tied up and wasn't really... Uh, didn't really make as much sense as those other ones in terms yeah. of like, what it was trying to do. Okay. I get you. But definitely worth seeing. I think we're worth seeing, yeah, exactly. And it's, yep. it's still really great fun and a good watch. And again, it's like $5 on iTunes. Yes, I agree. Great. Yeah, okay. So I, I guess getting into some... Some little so that that concludes our, our spoiler-free review. That concludes our spoiler-free review. Yes, if yes. you want to avoid spoilers, jump off and watch the movie now. We're gonna. I don't yep. really have much. Probably about ten ten minutes worth of stuff yeah, we can so talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Okay, starting with a question that may or may not have been a spoiler. Sure. Um, what point in this movie did you get the most nostalgia from, or feel the strongest moment of? Like, I remember my version of that. I think that. I didn't really get much nostalgia for the 90s aesthetic, obviously, because yeah. it's LA and it's 10 years older than we are. I didn't either. Um, I think it's mostly just the insecurity and the childhood, like hanging out with kids that are older than you and worrying about what everyone thinks about you and not realizing until a lot later than ever, everyone's the same and everyone's worried about what everyone else thinks. I think that's something that I've like only recently sort of come to grasp, come to terms with like how much it is that everyone seems to be in that same headspace about worrying what everyone else thinks about them. Yeah, for sure. Or like at some point, everyone was that. At some point, yeah. everyone was that insecure about all that sort of thing. And I think it's more that sort of emotional, the sort of emotions the kid was going through is more what I related to rather than anything else. But I think that's relatively universal rather than specific to the 90s. Yeah, so, and there wasn't a, so I don't there wasn't a specific moment as much as no. like a, a tonal. Did you have like a specific thing. moment? Yeah, I did. And I was thinking about it in the car and now I've forgotten. I guess generally, yeah. I I, I had a I had an example of this, and I've completely forgotten this. <laughs> I'm a shitty podcaster. Um, for me, it wasn't skateboarding; it was riding bikes. Yeah. Um, going to a park and hanging out with people that you didn't know from your neighborhood, um, and your parents not being around, so you just kind of were only interacting with kids your own age or older. Yeah. And just like, yeah, I don't know, kind of making friends, but not with people that you really liked. Yeah. You know? Just people because they were there rather than because you liked them. Yeah. His relationship with Ruben. Um, that t- I definitely had like similar interactions with kids where I realized in hindsight, like, uh, the kid was just a, like, had, just had a shitty personality or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Well, 
I think it shows a lot about like I think one of the interesting things in the film is when it talks about like when they talk about how uh, fourth grade is like you know the poorest guy I know and like so fourth like, grade that's the other guy's nickname. Yeah, he's yeah. got like a lot of shit going on. Um, there's that really nice one of my my, my favorite scene in the film was when um, it's, it's when um, Stevie is like dragged into the skate shop by his mum. Yeah. Um, because he's been smoking or whatever, and his yeah. mom was like, "You stay the fuck away from my kid." And Stevie's like, "You're embarrassing me, mom. No, leave my friends alone." Yeah. Um, and then Stevie's like mortified that he's been so like his friends think he's a fucking loser because his mom came in and yeah. so he's sitting on the roof. And Ray, the oldest kid, comes up and like talks to him about how uh, the, the, uh, the quote is: "A lot of the time, we feel our lives are the worst." But I think that if you looked in anybody else's closet, you wouldn't trade your shit for their shit. And he talks about grief and losing his brother. His brother gets hit by, got hit by a car and died a few years ago or something. I think that's a really great scene. It's my favorite scene in the film in terms of like breaking down the barriers of this dumb, toxic, masculine relationship. And the old kid talking to the young kid and being like, man, you're right. Just don't Try not to worry about this shit. Everyone's yeah. going through stuff. And if you want to talk about it, we can talk about it. And you're also, I feel like you're also meant to, uh, that's meant to be the moment that really reinforces Ray as like, the, the, old, the, the aspirational yeah. leader, yeah, the one that you should try to be like. Yeah, um, I, yeah. I think that like, and so the whole film ends. If you really get into spoilers here, ends quite suddenly with a car crash. I think the car crash scene is done really well. It's like yeah. several flashes of frames and then cuts. Um, yeah, I yeah, it was very effective. I've never seen it done like that. And so the ending of the film is like Stevie is in hospital and he's the only one that's been hospitalized out of this car crash. Yeah. Um, and he wakes up and his mum's there and then the mum walks outside of the waiting room and all his skate kid friends are sleeping in the waiting room waiting for Stevie. Because they care so much. Because they care so much. And I think it sort of like reflects that fickleness of childhood friendships that you were sort of talking about before with like not really sure whether you hang out with these people because you like them or not. But like and these friends are just like all these dudes just been insulting and making fun of him the whole time. But like they're suddenly there when he's hurt and it's like they haven't overtly shown any love or affection for him up until then. So it's a nice sort of sense of closure in that sense. But it's also like shows how dumb these kids are that it took something like that for them to sort of rally with their friend. Yeah, I mean I think they did they they like they hung out heaps, so I'm not sure. I think that that short changes their um well I think it's sort of like it shows that like they sort of show their love for each other passively. Like they include each other and the fact that they're including each other and it's that like playful ribbing that almost shows affection for each other more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah. And it sort of shows how that can sort of get to you after a while and that like it's like yeah, that's fine and you can sort of show that you like each other by continuing to hang out with each other because mm. that's often how males tend to sort of do that. But it's nice to have that bit at the end where they sort of actively show that they love him. Yeah, and Ray says to him, like, you take the hardest hits out of anyone that I know and you think that he... And Sonny, like, smiles and because he's getting praised for yeah. it. And you think, like, don't reinforce this behavior. Well, he says, you know... You and, th- and then he says, yeah, like, you, you know you don't have to do that, right? Yeah. And it kind of, like really cuts through because what you expect is for that to be like a cool man, like nice job. And it's actually like a look at where you are right now. Like this is going to continue and it's not going to get any better if you keep doing this shit. So you need to kind of take care of yourself, which is cool. Yeah. The other thing that this film doesn't shy, like in terms of, uh, it's funny talking about like editing to try and like save budget and not showing stuff (laughs) actually happening. One thing that this film does show actually happening is um, a much older woman 
making out with a 13-year-old. I think in the film she's 16 or 17 or something. Yeah, still yeah. though. Like, this is a... <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not trying to, I'm trying to give context. A, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to... Yeah. It sounds like you were saying like thir- 30 or something. No, no. Um, although... <laughs> she's like... Yeah. yeah the so character is th- like 16 or 17. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a definite moment which if you've seen it, you'll know which one we're talking about. If you haven't seen it, um, there is a... Uh, not a sex scene, but an intimate scene between Sonny and... Not Sonny. Stevie. Stevie. Like, they're sitting they're sitting on this girl's bed and, like, feeling each other. Yeah, and so she's sort of, like, flirting with him and then, yeah, they, they end up, like, going into her room and getting undressed. Like, what's shown on camera is, like, they get undressed and they're making out and then, like, it kind of cuts and he they both walk out. But there's a few moments where you realize, like, well, this is just, like, this kid is so uncomfortable. He's yeah. really, like, he's shaking and sort of... Probably excited, but doesn't really understand what's going on. And she is old enough to know and is clearly making some pretty, pretty fucking troubling choices about what what she's doing and and who she's choosing to do it with. And then the way that it's treated, I think, is one of the most interesting ways to reflect this. Because just as as a flat statement, obviously, there's much more problematic abuse of young women than there is problematic abusive young men. But this happens to young men that they're placed in these situations early and there's a lot of societal pressure for them to be fine with it and be cool about it and to use it as a point of pride. You're like, yeah, man, you got your fuck on. Well done. Exactly. And like this child is is 12. This child is 12. Like he doesn't know what's going on and this person is not his age so they are not figuring it out together. No. They are... He is being led along this path by someone who's manipulating him. Yeah. And it it's he's deeply kind of uncomfortable about it and you can see that the whole time. And I it's think pretty quick. I didn't really get that sense of like Oh man, I was mortified. I think it affected me a lot more than no, it affected I, I, you. I didn't really see that. Like I thought like, yeah, maybe he's shy. But like I think that the most effective part of the scene for me, not to cut you off, was the immediate follow up when he's talking about what he's doing. Well friends. yeah, I think it's but I think it's it's twofold. It doesn't have the payoff without the build up, right? Yeah. And I think that the the build up is that he multiple times talks about how nervous he is and how he's like shaking. Um and she is basically just like, Oh, don't be nervous and then like tells him what to do. Yeah. And it's like an older person telling you what to do. He's never kind of He's never made the choice to remove himself from these types of situations. Like, he's always just said yes and gone with things. Yeah. And I think it just goes to show that if you do that because you're not equipped to sort of bow out when <laughs> you're uncomfortable, it shows what how people won't make that choice for you. They'll, they will involve you when they shouldn't. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so he ends up, like, I think, to put it bluntly fingering and making out with this person and she you touches really him or whatever. You don't really see what goes on, yeah. You don't see that, but it's talked about afterwards, which as you as you say is is I think one of the most powerful uses of this because it's not just showing you to exploit it. It's it's showing you in a very honest and raw sense how uh how uncomfortable and how weird and awkward that was for his first kind of interaction with with a woman really in that setting. Yeah. And he goes outside and his friends are immediately just like, fuck, man, that's so yeah, cool. Yeah. And he's like, oh, and all like of a sudden he gets them. this massive smile on his face. And yeah. yeah, I was talking with my, with my partner about this. The way his face changes and lights up as soon as he sees that his friends are like a pr- giving him approval. Yeah, because it's something that was like uncomfortable to him. But as soon as he realizes that that can be converted into social credit, yeah. he... he Loves uh, it. Thinks very positively of, of what just happened. Exactly. Which is obviously getting into a problematic space where you're encouraging that type of thing really early before people are ready for it. And I think a similar thing would have happened for him like 
smoking because he knew that but when but when he was about to try his first cigarette the guy's like oh do you smoke and he's like yeah 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 because it's it's for some reason it's cooler to smoke than yeah. it is to not because of to that be fair, like social is, pressure smoke so like, cool. smoke is fucking awesome <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing it right now um, <laughs> but the yeah it, it's just this 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 recurring it's it's showing another way that this recurring pattern of something that shouldn't be good or positive is. Yeah is going to gain you social credit within that setting of, of young men. And so you do it yeah. anyway, regardless of whether or not you actually want to do it. Yeah. It's the same thing as like it's, insulting it's, each other. Yeah. It's peer pressure, shit. but a unique form of peer pressure that happens, I think within these like I think so. circles I think of boys. And I think it's interesting that it doesn't get discussed as much as like the peer pressure involved around like smoking and stuff. Yeah. Because we don't talk about it because it's a social taboo, right? Like Yeah. And also because it's awesome. Revealing like, like a personal thing. Like <laughs> uh, my, my first kiss was at 14 and it was with a woman that was 17. So like I and it took me a while when I was talking about this movie. I was like, oh, those ages almost line up exactly with what was in this film. Like it was a different thing, but... Yeah. Um, I I had a similar experience, and like if that was a seventeen-year-old man and a fourteen-year-old boy, for me that's hugely. Oh, uh, sorry, seventeen-year-old man, fourteen-year-old girl, or a fourteen-year-old boy. Actually, yeah. that age difference is problematic now yeah. on paper for me, but that happened to me. So like, yeah, it's interesting that I didn't even compare my own quite similar experience to that, even though that did happen. Even though the film's showing you, look how fucked this is. Yeah, and it certainly wasn't. It certainly didn't feel like that at the time. Right. So, yeah, I don't know. It's uh, That was just an interesting interesting I, thing. I think more in general, it's just it's t- it's showing how, like, any problematic behavior can be normalized and goes on without parents really seeing it. And, like, I think that it's interesting the way in which all the sorts of scenes like that that happen in the film mm. are kind of swept away at the end of the film. Like, all yes. the trauma that the kids experienced and all the trauma that the mum has objected and yelled about and objected to, was, stay away from my kid... It's kind of all just swept away and forgotten about at the end of the film, and it's yeah. just—it seems like it's all just dismissed as like, oh, it's all just part of childhood, isn't it? And then plays a great song, and that's the credits. I felt like and it I was, think that he was too busy growing up to focus too much on any of it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, that's—it yeah. seems like that's the most hard-hitting part of the film is that sort of he's in hospital and his his, his friends come to visit him, and then it ends. And you're like, oh, hold on. He was like fucking sexually assaulted and he's drinking and he's smoking and yeah. all these like kids and uh, his brother was beating him and yep. his, his mom's neglecting him. And then it, the film's just ending and he's like, oh, it's just part of being a kid in the 90s, lol. And, and I there's think that no kind of indication. Like, yeah. Sorry. Oh, it's just, and I, I, you know, they're using all these like homophobic slurs and all that and they have all these problems with race. And the way in which it just dismisses that and just doesn't address any of it, I think is the most hard-hitting criticism of it. Just the fact that like it get it gets the audience thinking about it being like, "Well, why didn't he why didn't he address any of that stuff?" Yeah. Well, it's because that stuff isn't addressed anyway. It's, it's sort of saying like all this stuff happens in childhood and people don't talk about it and people don't address it and look here it is going on and you want to confront me Jonah Jonah Hill in interviews about like, "Oh, why did you do that?" Yeah. And it's like, "Well, think about what's happening in real fucking life." Yeah, because this happened. Like, yeah. yeah, this was this was very heavily influenced by my lived experience, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um uh, and I think also what this what this is doing by cutting it short is and not tying it up is that there are so he's with a group of four boys. There are two Ray and fourth grade both have reasonably strong aspirations. Yeah. Ray is sort of given a lot more credit, but fourth grade wants to be a filmmaker. Ray wants to be a professional skateboarder. I think the actor in real life is a professional skateboarder. He had some really impressive skating in the film. Yeah, he did. Well. Yeah, <laughs> it was just cool. Um, so and then fuck shit. D- it doesn't and is starting to to show a real like kind of like downward spiral yeah, yeah. A- and um Ruben 
uh, is also much of Ruben. He's a little kid. You don't, but I would say if I had to like lump him in with one, he doesn't really. He never talks about what he wants to do or anything like that. So he certainly doesn't exhibit the same like drive or passion as fourth grade or. But I think that neither is Stevie. I think that's more. That's my point. Is that Stevie is is younger than all of them, so he hasn't had time to sort of filter in. But and he's still very much trying to find himself. But but the film ending at the point that it does goes to show we don't know which of those two groups he falls into, right? Right. Like Ray is trying to hold his hand and sort of guide him by telling him that thing at the end, and, yeah. and like constantly being like, I mean, there are points in the film where Stevie is literally, but like diametrically forced to choose between going and hanging out with fuck shit who's trying to get him to come and, and be like... Party this, and drink right. and that, yeah. And Ray, who's like, come on, man, you don't like you don't need any more of that shit. Like, come on, let's come with me. And it, So he's being pulled in both directions. Yeah. Um, and I don't think you're given a clear resolution as to which one. I mean, I think he thinks more highly of Ray, but it, he exhibits a shitload more behavior similar to fuck shit. So, yeah. like, uh, yeah, for me, that was an interesting point to tie it up because we, we're not given much clarity on his... His future direction. Yeah, and I think that lack of clarity and I think that the way in which it doesn't address all these issues that are in the film is really interesting and mm. rewarding. Let me sort of think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Is that about... That's if me. Okay, yeah. I think that's about all the time we have left for on this week's episode of Beef Station. Uh, check out Mid-90s if you haven't. Mm. I hope you enjoy it. We certainly did. Yeah. Um, if you want to email us, if you've got any thoughts or any suggestions on stuff you want to cover on the show, I think we've sort of figured out the next few weeks of what we're going to cover. There's some stuff that's happening in the cinema soon that we're excited about. Um, if you want to email us, our email address is beefstationpod at gmail.com. And when we get a quiet moment in the cinema, we'll go to some listener suggestions. We've got a bit of a backlog and we'll get to yours. Oh, that's actually not true. We haven't had much of a suggestion in a little while. So if no, you've got a suggestion haven't. for something that you want us to do, let us know. We'll cover it once it starts to quieten down the cinema a bit. Um, in the near future, I think uh, Ari Aster's Midsommar looks good. I want to yeah. see Stuba because I like the actors are in it, even though it sounds like it's not necessarily yeah, it's the most getting, wonderful film. It's getting shattered. Uh, there's a couple of films I'm interested in seeing anyway. Um, <laughs> our Facebook page that we're terrible at updating, but you can like us anyway to validate us and stay updated Fuck occasionally yeah. on new episodes, is facebook.com slash beefstationpod. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, thanks for joining us for another week. I'm Oscar. I am Andrew. See you later. Hey, yo, you better flee, hops. Or get your head flown three blocks. LK rappers, hearts pumping like D-Rocks. And every day I gain clout in my name sprout. Some brothers will still be virgins. The crap never came out. I got the wild style, always been a foul child. My guns go boom, boom, and your guns go out, pow. I'm known to have a hottie open. I keep the shotty smoking. Front and get half the bones in your body broken. And when it comes to getting nookie, I'm not a rookie. I got girls that make that chick Tony Braxton look like Whoopi. I run with sturdy clicks. I'm never hitting dirty chicks. Got 35 bodies, buddy. Don't make it 36. Step to this, you're good as gone. Where it's born, I leave mics torn when I put.